Hey, this is Jordan Rothline from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, Red Bull Radio's podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. The Grammy-nominated Howard Billerman is perhaps best known as a former member of Arcade Fire and the engineer for the band's breakthrough album Funeral. Since 1995, Billerman has been recording professionally and is one of the most sought-after engineers to get behind the boards for an album in the city of Montreal. He co-owns and co-operates the recording studio Hotel to Tango. Throughout his prolific career, he's worked with over 400 artists, including some of Canada's finest, Godspeed You Black Emperor, Handsome Furs, Wolf Parade, The Silver Mount Zion, Bell Orchestra, and even Leonard Cohen. In this episode of Couch Wisdom, recorded at the 2016 Red Bull Music Academy in Montreal, Billerman retraces the steps that took him from recording live bands to becoming an integral part of the city's music scene. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. If you say, what is the thing you're most proud of in your 20-something years of recording bands? It's not the number of records I've recorded. It's not the specific few records that I've recorded that resonate with people. It's the fact that I've been able to record so many different kinds of music um, in French, in English, in Portuguese, um, that I don't have to keep on making the same record over and over again because I think that would get really boring. And I've been really fortunate to get to work with a lot of people who sound different. Um, and that's the thing I'm most proud of in, in this all. Did when you got your start, was that the aim? Was it to do as many different types of music as possible? I, I think when I got, when I, the aim when I started was, was just to be able to keep on doing it and pay rent until the next month and eat, you know? And just to, like, to stave off having to get another job for a little longer. Um, and I was really lucky that I had a lot of friends who were in bands and, you know, there's that, that uh, shampoo commercial, like I told two friends and they told two friends and then you have like 70 people washing their hair on the, in the that's, that was, that's my career really in a nutshell, which is I recorded one band and they shared a practice space with someone else and that band said, oh, we need recording. Hey, that doesn't, doesn't sound that bad and why? Well, he's not that expensive. And then I just haven't stopped. I haven't stopped recording bands professionally since, since 1995. And that started, this all started in Montreal. This all started, this all started in Montreal. This started, uh, the first experience I had recording anything was recording bands live. I had a friend when I was in college who needed his band taped. Um, and I was 17 at the time, so I was underage. And he was 20, and it was in a club here called Fufun Electrique. Um, and I had to be super cool about it because like, I didn't want to seem like I was nervous that A, I was underage, and B, like, this was the punkiest of punk clubs in Montreal. So I arrived with my microphone and tape deck, and I recorded his show. And there was something really intoxicating about it, about just being in that environment. Um, and then eventually I got more equipment and more microphones and the cassette deck was replaced by a four track. And then I bought studio gear, but really, and actually, if you want to talk about through line, like recording bands live for many years, greatly informed to me what bands sound like and by extension, what records should sound like. 
um, you know, a band is on stage, they're playing to an audience. There's a direct line of communication between the band on stage and the audience. It's happening in real time. And most records don't reflect that. And so I thought, you know, after seeing so, many, so much live music and listening to records and feeling let down by the records, not feeling like they represented the bands, I thought that what's the problem here that needs to be solved? So the problem that needs to be solved is when people make records, I thought, they need to think of it as a live performance delayed by space and time. So you're in a studio, you're singing, you're playing music, and you can't see your audience. And your audience won't hear this for six months but you really are you know, throwing a, a message in a bottle and the bottle washes up on shore six months later and someone hears it. But you need, to, you need to play with the same sort of intensity and the desire to communicate something when you're in a studio as you would if you were on stage playing for people. And that, that lesson was learned from years of just showing up at clubs and watching bands play and, and getting to record them. Tell me about Montreal back around that time when you first started going out. I mean, what was the scene like? I think a lot of people think about Godspeed You Black Emperor and that it was this magical sort of time of unbridled creativity. Was that the way it felt? My, my involvement precedes Godspeed by about eight years. So my when I first started paying attention to bands in Montreal, you know, I grew up listening to to all the classics, listening to Rolling Stones and Neil Young and, and the Beatles. And, and then around 1986 or 87, I started paying attention to bands from Montreal, Sons of the Desert and Three O'Clock Train and other bands from Canada, like the Cowboy Junkies and bands from here like the Asexuals. And I realized these bands are, are just as good as, I mean, they make me feel just as good listening to this music. As, as any of the records that I grew up listening to. But these bands are here in my backyard. But the infrastructure wasn't there. There weren't really that many clubs to play in. There weren't, that, there, there weren't really any artist-run recording studios. There were a lot of commercial high-end recording studios that you needed a record deal to be able to afford to record in. And there were a lot of people who had things in their basement, but there wasn't really like what we have now at the Hotel Tatango and studio like Break Glass in Montreal. There wasn't professional artist-run facilities that would be sympathetic to artists. So then, you know, 87, 88, 89, I really got knee-deep in, in the bands that came from here. Um, and and it was, there was something just really immediate about being able to, to see a band and then know that they're from your hometown and converse with them and become friends with them and see them get bigger and wait for their new, next record to come out. Um, but the city was, was, was financially depressed. Um, this, this neighborhood, old Montreal, was like, you just didn't want to be in this neighborhood when the sun went down. Uh, all, half the buildings were vacant. Um, the businesses had just left. Um, it, it was really... It's this idea of the referendum was kind of hanging over the city a little bit. Yeah, the, the, kind of messed stuff up for a bit. But also, you don't know what the referendum is. Can you kind of describe that? And yeah, the referendum was basically uh, Quebec, which is a province in Canada. Um, there's a, a portion of the population that believes in sovereignty that believes that Quebec should be its own nation. 
And so the referendum was a public vote. I think the first referendum was in 76, and then another one was in 94. Uh, basically just a simple question, should Quebec separate from Canada? Um, and it really made a lot of people antsy. Uh, and anyone who was looking for some sort of financial stability just got up and moved to Toronto. Um, I'm really happy that my parents chose to stay here uh, and that I grew up here and I grew up with multiculturalism. And um, for me, the, the economic instability of this town opened the door for me to be able to rent a 2,000 square foot loft for $800 and learn about what recording was. And those opportunities don't exist anymore in this city like that. So for me, I was super fortunate, you know. Your first recording studio is Mom and Pop. Is it Mom and Pop? Mom and Pop Sounds, sounds? which was a tribute to the fact that it literally was in my parents' basement. And uh, it lasted uh, one recording session. (laughs) Um, My parents were really generous with me, both with um, lending me some cash to buy some recording equipment and then being like, hey, can I set up a recording studio in your basement? And they were like, Mm, okay, at least he wants to do something. And, uh, and so, you know, we'd record in the basement and then realized, oh, fuck, the drums sound great in the garage with all the concrete. So let's put the drums in the garage and we'll put the rest of the band in the basement. And then my dad was like, oh, we need to park the, we'll just park it on the street, it's fine. And then, um, and then the kind of straw was like, they had gone to Costco, I think, and they'd filled up the, the, cupboards with food and then they came home and like the band was in the den snacking on all the food they just bought and my dad pulled me aside and I was like how we need to find another space um and it was easy it literally was easy and it was just you know I tried to find some people to partner with to share the rent and and that's what we did I had a friend who had a loft yeah just right near here actually on Lagosha chair the building is gone now they tore down the building and he had a, this beautiful loft, 1,800 square foot loft, and he was in a band and needed to record. And he knew that I had recording equipment. So he's like, listen, I'll make you a deal. You have this recording equipment and you just got kicked out of your parents' basement. And I have a band and we need to record, but we have a space. So why don't you move in your stuff for a month and for two weeks, I'll record my band with your equipment. And then for the other two weeks, you can record all the bands that you have to record. And, uh, and I stayed there for four years. Um, and the only reason I left was because the city had condemned the building because the slumlord uh, refused to put fire escapes. Um, the, the building didn't have fire escapes. And so, and the slumlord's like, I'm not going to do it. And the city was like, put like little stickers on everyone's door saying, you, you have to leave. Like this building is unsafe. There was a weird series of break-ins, like armed robbery in the building. Our neighbors were DJs and like, got broken into in the middle of the night. And it was just like, oh, I think it's time to leave. Like where did the, you go? Uh, I went, where did I go? I went to a loft on Saint Laurent just for a very short period of time. And then uh, Godspeed, uh, this is like 1998 or 99, Godspeed had a practice space on Van Horn Street, which they called the Hotel Tatango, which they were running shows out of and rehearsing there. There were no, all, at that point, all of the bars you had to pay to play. So if you want to do a show, you would you'd pretty much lose money unless you sold out the show. You'd have to pay the sound person, you'd have to rent the room, they would charge you like $5 per towel. Um, oh, you want lights, that's an extra $100. And it was like, just it's like a make work project for clubs. It wasn't, a, you know, it had nothing to do with the community. And so uh, Terry and Ephraim had this loft 
called the Hotel Tatango, and then they heard that I was looking for a space. It was kind of the similar situation where they're like, you have all this equipment, we want to actually set up a studio here, so why don't we, why don't we do that? Why don't we put up a bunch of walls and make a recording studio? That was in 19, I think we, think we opened that in 1999, and then we, we, were, we stayed there for about nine years. What are the challenges of recording a band like Godspeed and uh, their various projects where, you know, we listened to that kind of mega mix earlier and it's, a lot of it's very like band oriented. You're capturing the band. seems like this in particular might provide odd situations that you don't run into normally. So I realized like a few years into recording bands that making a record is a dance really between what's good for the band and what's good for you as a sound engineer producer. So bands are used to performing together. They rehearse in a jam space together. They go on stage. Everyone plays at the exact same time together. And so when they go make a record, they should feel most comfortable doing that. You know, a show isn't, let's play the drums first, and then we'll do the bass on stage, and then the guitars, and the audience will, you know, understand. But that's just, that's not how records are made. Sorry, that's not how shows are, are played, so that shouldn't be how records are made. So a band is really comfortable, I think, playing together and being able to see each other and hear each other in the room sometimes, as opposed to headphones. That's a fucking disaster for a sound engineer. Um, especially a band like that, where you have acoustic instruments, you have strings, you have an acoustic bass, a cello, two violins. Um, if those people are in the same room with a drummer, the drums are probably going to be louder in all the string mics than the strings are. But I didn't want to be the person who asserted that it needed to be good for me to record your band. You know, I can't work with this. Like, I, you know, I'd seen enough sound checks, actually, where the sound person would be like, hey, can you turn down your guitar? And would say it so condescendingly, like, look, this is all about me. So the only way to survive, really, if you're going to proceed saying, I want the band to be as comfortable as possible, is to just learn how to, how to make it work. And that involves a shitload of mic technique, uh, from the choosing of what, you know, which mics you use to where you place them, uh, how you baffle people, which angles you face things. And so, so when I listen to that and when I listen to your question, that's really what I, what I think about is the, is, is the culmination of a lot of learning and technique and, and just making concessions. You know, Sometimes you're recording a band and they're all playing live in a room and, and you just think the drums aren't going to sound as good as I want them to be. Is that the end of the world? Would it be better for the drums to sound amazing, but the drummer to be so uncomfortable that the playing is awful? No. So really, I think it's important to learn how much you need to make it about you and how much you just need to let the band do their thing and just stand back and as if you were taking a picture of them, really. The original Hotel Tatango was a... Uh, 2,000 square foot loft with wood floors and wood ceilings that was an amazing space which had the misfortune of being above a garage. Um, and the, the extra misfortune was that the person who ran the garage owned the building. 
So uh, they were uncompromising in the fact that from 8 a.m. till 5 p.m., they were going to work, which is fine. I understand. So from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., you heard, and it just sailed through the floor. So we couldn't work. We couldn't work until 5 p.m. Um, and by that time, enough exhaust from all the cars that they're working on had accumulated in the top floor of the loft. And maybe that's the secret to all of those recordings. It's yet to be discerned, really. But so it was a it was a bit of a flawed space, but it was originally eight hundred and ninety three dollars a month, um, and you know what you pay rent directly correlates to how much you have to charge your clients to record there. So again, you know, in the late nineties, we were paying nothing to rent this space, and it meant that we could charge, you know, not that much to record, which really meant that we recorded a lot of interesting things because. For me, like generally, the most of the big budget stuff that I've worked on isn't that interesting. It's always the people who are like, "This is our first record, and we're still sort of finding out what we sound like." And you know, can you guide us through it and help us find who we are as a band? Those are the really interesting projects. But you don't you don't get those projects unless you you can charge people affordable rates. I think for a lot of people, uh, Montreal and Hotel Tatango takes on some sort of mythic quality. Um, did it feel like you were doing something important at the time, or was it just like, I'm just here? Well, it was an exciting time. You know, it was an exciting time to, you know, I grew up when I was 17, 18, 19, I listened to a a lot of Fugazi, and I love that band. And I love that band, not just for the music, but I love that band for everything they stood for. For the fact that they would do live shows for under 10 bucks, for the fact that, you know, I went to this shitty record store here that everything was marked up on, and a Fugazi record was $20 or something, and it had a little sticker on it saying, postage paid, $7.99, from Discord Records. You know, it was just like, we're gonna do this on our own terms. And, and it, it just, it just, it really opened my eyes up to how you can participate completely on your own terms. And then Godspeed did that. Godspeed in 1995, 96, 97, played around the world, became interviewed on, you know, humongous magazines, uh, refused to send out press photos or bios, did it completely on their own terms. And it was really exciting to be aligned with that, even tangentially. So did I think we at the hotel or did I think I was doing anything ex you know, exciting or worth talking about 15, 20 years later? Not really, but I knew I was extremely proud of my friends and I got to see firsthand that you, you can do things on your own terms and make a living and that you don't have to make concessions. So that felt very exciting. So How'd you end up playing uh, drums for the Arcade Fire? I ended up playing drums for them. Uh, they'd come to record a seven inch with me, that song and Power Out. And then they had, uh, the previous version of the band had imploded and they had lost their drummer. Quite dramatically, I understand there was. They, I think they broke up on stage. Is the story that I understand. 
Um, so they came to record this record, but they also had all these shows booked. And so in the middle of recording, Wynn was like, listen, do you know anyone who plays drums? And uh, they were really great to hang out with, and, and I liked the songs. And so I was like, I'll think about it. And like, like that night, I was like, should I do it? Should I do it? And I was like, dear Wynn, the only person I can think of who would play drums would be me. And he's like, great, so here are our shows. Are you free? Can you do these shows? Um, and then it just sort of like uh, snowballed. Then there were more shows booked based on the, those shows. And then there were more songs to record. And then like a year later, we had Funeral recorded. Um, the Seven Inch never came out. The, the version of Power Out got re-recorded. Um, yeah, that's it. The interesting thing to me about that record is obviously it's like an indie rock classic, but the influences of all of the people in that group are just about as far from indie rock as you might could imagine. Yeah, well, I think the most interesting music in in, in the whole history of music, I think the most interesting music is when something meets something else and births a new thing. Um, I don't really like... Like for me, the records I like to listen to, I don't like to be like, oh, this sounds just like this. You know, I kind of like to scratch my head and be like, there's this, this, and this in it. You wouldn't think it would work, but it works. That's crazy. Um, so I think that's, that's where sort of special records come from is that, that complete, uh, it's like, how do, we, and how do we make all these things fit together? Seems like Wynn and the rest of the band are pretty hands-on in the studio and especially with the production side of things. I mean, yeah. they, I guess they're uh, credited as producers on almost all the records. I mean, everyone could have produced that record and certainly everyone did have a hand in, uh, in, in sort of the, the democracy of like, well, we should do this, we should try this, we should try that. But definitely there was, I mean, in the same way that all of those people are multi-instrumentalists, they're all, they all have really great ears for production and things like that. What do you remember about those sessions? Like, what really stands out to you as being... Um, I mean, on a technical level, what's cool about that record is that we, we, you know, we'd go play some shows and then the studio would be really booked and they'd be like, okay, look, we have Saturday and Sunday free at the studio, so let's go record one, one song. And then a few weeks later, it was like, oh, we have five days. Let's record two more songs. And, but, so, and because of it, like sometimes I would just use the mic setup for whoever just left. Like I would just leave the drum mics up and then slide my drums in and record. So every, I think every single song on that record is recorded completely differently. Sometimes the drums have like 10 mics. Sometimes there's one mic on the drums. Sometimes it's three mics on the drums. Um, sometimes the bass has a DI, sometimes it doesn't have a DI, uh, different vocal mics used for each song. Um, and I think it really sort of played into this, the result of it, which is that the record kind of sounds a bit like a good mixtape. You know, it doesn't necessarily sound like 10 of the same songs recorded in the same place at the same time. There's some movement in it. So I think that wasn't, there wasn't the intention to do it, but the fact that we had to take two days here and two days there whenever there was a hole in the studio calendar sort of forced the issue of having, having to do it that way and having there be not much consistency between the way each of those songs were recorded. You kind of fell into being the drummer for Arcade Fire, basically. It was yeah. like, shows, shows, okay, I'm here now. You left the band uh, at a certain point. Like, what happened? and Why did you decide to do that? You know... You know, that joke, 
I don't think I just think it's a joke. I think it's true. But apparently someone asked John Lennon, do you think Ringo's the best drummer in the world? And John Lennon's answer was, Ringo isn't even the best drummer in the Beatles. And so I feel like I was probably the third best drummer in the Arcade Fire. <laughs> Maybe even the fourth best drummer in Arcade Fire, which with a band of six people is not great numbers, really. <laughs> you know, you're kind of floating at the bottom. And um, I don't know, I kind of felt like when I joined that band, you know, it's like, you know when the coach of a sports team gets fired and there's like 10 games left in the season and they're like, well, we don't have time to hire the coach for next season because no one's available. So we'll just get either the assistant coach or whoever takes care of the locker room and he'll, he'll just coach the rest of the season. And it's sort of like known that like, it's kind of not going to be the guy who's going to be the coach next year. And so, I, so my position in that band was kind of always like a sort of stand-in. Like I wasn't sworn in. It was just like, he'll just stand in and then just circumstantially the band took off. Um, but once we, most of the songs on Funeral were, were written before I joined the band. So really I was just learning someone else's drum parts. We wrote the song Rebellion while I was in the band. But then once it was all recorded and we sort of come down to the other side of the hill of having this record finished and we started to practice and it just, I don't know, there's something, it just wasn't, it just didn't feel like there was chemistry there. It was sort of frustrating. Um, and so Wynn and I had a lot of talks and I, about, you know, three or four talks about like, well, what do you think we should do, you know? And eventually we just decided like, you should probably find a drummer drummer because shit's gonna get out of hand really quickly. And I don't know, I don't necessarily know that that's the sort of the, the medium length answer of it. <laughs> but you know, I have to say, like, I, I have, like, I don't think I have the constitution to be in a band. Why do you say that? At least at that time, I just had these, like, incredibly uncompromising morals or beliefs about how you should proceed. Uh, and I would get these like weird fight or flight responses about things like just stupid things like like we were, we were supposed to play this festival. It was a nine band festival and we'd signed the contract on the contract that said your fifth headliner, which means headliner, one, two, three, four. There, there, we were there. And we kind of like talked about it. It's like, well, it's kind of shitty. Like, well, at least it's not in the middle of the afternoon, like the sun will kind of be going down. And so we agreed to do it. And then like a week before the festival, they added another band and the band was bigger than Arcade Fire. So they, they were like, they became the fifth headliner and we got bumped down to the sixth head. And like everyone was kind of like, well, whatever. And I, and I was just like, I would literally fight or flight response. I'm like, no, this isn't right. You can't, you can't, you can't just be pushed around like that. You know, you, and it would just, it would just put me in a bad mood for a, for days, you know, it's, it's like saying this now, it's kind of like, that's a little strange. But like, I really felt like you're either, you're either in this together and you stand up for yourself and you, you do it without any compromises. Because every, every band that I ever dreamt of being in seemed that they proceeded that way. Fugazi and The Clash, the, they seemed to just do everything uncompromising and not let anyone do anything that would fuck them around. And that's kind of the band I wanted to be in without, and so I just felt like I just couldn't really roll with things, you know. There's a bunch of other silly little examples too, 
But ultimately, oh, here, this is, this is, I'll tell you this little silly example, and then we can move on, which is that, or we, or we can just talk Let's about just this all day. on these. Which is that, um, there was a, this magazine from Toronto wanted to do a cover story about Arcade Fire. And so they were sending a journalist and the photographer from Toronto. And while they were en route, it comes out that this magazine has a policy of only putting one person on the front cover of the magazine. And so, you know, we're kind of bummed. Like, you know, it's like we're a band. We're a band. So we put win on the cover, but like we're a band. Like I was kind of bummed. Richie was kind of bummed. We talked about it and like we each saw the, 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 the pros and cons of it, right? We saw like, well, it'd be good for the band to have this cover story, you know, and like, but like, oh, there's something kind of yucky about, you know, about it. So we talked about it, talked about it, and Wynn had called the magazine and the magazine said, no, like, this is our policy. This is our only policy. And I, th I said, said something kind of self-righteous, something like, well, do you think they would tell you too that they would only put one member of the band on the cover? Like, why don't we proceed with this interview the way we want to be treated? And, and there was a long fight, and then the journalist came. Sorry, it wasn't a fight. I don't mean this fight. mood when the journalist Yeah, came. well, that, that's part of the story. It wasn't a fight. It was just, it, everyone was very respectful of everyone's point of view. It was just a situation we found ourselves in, you know. Didn't really know how to proceed because we wanted to do the interview, but we wanted to do it on our terms. So the journalist and photographer arrive, and Wynn is like on the phone with the publisher or something like that. And finally they give in. They're like, fine. We will break with tradition and we will let the whole band be on the cover of this magazine. But like the whole thing just put me in a horrible mood. Like literally it felt like this is a life and death situation, which it wasn't, you know, but this is like, that's what I mean about just not feeling like I didn't have the constitution to be in a band. I mean, you talked earlier about how being a producer and engineer, you need to kind of pull yourself out of it some ways let the band be as comfortable as possible and it's not about the way that you want it to sound necessarily well, have you found a little bit of no that, that, that's uh, when I'm recording a band it's their record it's their thing if I make it my thing I'm not doing them you know it cannot be overstated how important Steve Albini is to independent music to recordings in the past 25 years because Steve Albini politicized recording. Steve Albini politicized do-it-yourself. Steve Albini politicized being an independent band. And Steve Albini insisted that if you're going to record a band, you must be sympathetic to that band. You must be in service to that band, and you must treat them as if they were the most important part of the equation. It cannot be about you. So when I record a band, it's about the band. It's not about me. When I'm in a band, it is about me. And, you know, I'm there. We're all up there together on stage. So it should be about us. You know, I had this realization like, I don't know, a decade ago, that if, if bands stopped playing music, bands stopped writing music and performing, there would be so many people out of work Clubs would go bankrupt, magazines would go bankrupt, agents, publicists, managers, tour managers, touring companies, record labels, press people, they would all be out of a job. So that, to me, intimates that the most important part of the equation, the most important, the center of the cog, cog of the wheel is the band. 
But the way that the industry has manifested itself, the band is not treated like the most important cog in the wheel. So really, I feel like if anyone is going to be in a band, and if I'm going to be in a band, it, it, there needs to be some sort of acknowledgement that like all of this is happening because of the band. Um, so that's sort of, and I still believe that. So I, I, I don't, I don't think that I'm able to remove myself from it in the way that you're saying. You, uh, I guess, is much easier in the digital age, uh, but you do a lot with tape uh, through the years. Yeah, right? for sure. We started. I mean, we only, I only touched Pro Tools in 2008. So there was like 300 records done before that exclusively to tape. Uh, half inch, 16 track, 24 track, two inch. Um, and that taught me so much because when you record to tape, you have very limited means and you need to get things to sound good without needing much to any intervention later. So you, everything that gets recorded has to be, you have to be content enough with it that if you couldn't do anything to it in terms of the sound or in terms of the performance, then you can live with it. And, and recording the tape is very front-end loaded to performance, which ties directly into what I think records should sound like, which is performances to people. Um, so, you know, there's the, the age-old quote of limitations make better art. What does that mean? I believe it's true, first of all. And I believe that recording to tape embraces the fact that you have limitations and the records are better because of it. That's not to say you can't record to computer the exact same way, but somehow you don't. So like when I was a kid, when you'd get a box of crayons, it would have eight colors in it, you know? They'd have just as much as you need to make a drawing. And you'd make drawings. Then when my brother was a kid, a few years later, they'd be like, boxes of 24 crayons and you have 24 colors to play with and now like I have a son and I'm looking at Toys R Us and there's like barrels of like a thousand different colors of crayons so what happens is you have art that has way too many colors in it colors that clash way too much and to me that that's what recording on computer enables you know it, the records to me they sound a bit overbaked because you can have an infinite number of tracks so you're not questioning arrangement while you're recording. Like, do we need to triple track the tambourine? And when you're recording to tape, you can't, you can't. You'll run it, it's like if you triple track the tambourine, I'm sorry band, there's no lead vocals on this record. <laughs> and then tambourine you have- sounds fantastic. <laughs> and the Grammy award for best tambourine goes to. Um, but the other thing is in Pro Tools, you have the ability to have five different plugins on each track. When I started recording, outboard gear was corrective. You know, if like, oh shit, the dynamics are a little crazy on that, you'd put a compressor on it. Oh, if the, you know, we've been recording this record for six months and all the high end is gone from the snare because the tape has just been played to shit, we'll use the EQ, we'll put back some high end. Now it's this weird thing where you're forced with all these options. You're forced with, you know, you have a thousand crayons. Your impulse is to use them. I didn't learn how to record like that. I learned how to record with very, you know, to me, limited means recording to tape taught me what punk rock was. Punk rock is not an aesthetic. Punk rock is not a sound. Punk is 
doing the most you can with what you have. And so that's true if you're a band and this is as much talent as you have, or this is, uh, these are the best uh, instruments we could afford. It's doing the best, absolute best you can with what you have. And trying to make a record on 16 tracks, you have to be implicated in every decision from the beginning. There's no like, oh, we'll fix it later. And so it's a, it's a, it's an, I think it's an incredible way to be present in recordings. You know, reels of two inch tape now is 500 bucks for 33 minutes of two inch tape. If you told a band, you have two, you, you can only afford two reels of tape. You can only record, you can only have 66 minutes of audio recorded. They're not going to do, they can't do 12 takes of a song and then comp them together later and figure it out. They literally have to do a take and say, that was pretty good. I think we can beat it. Should we keep it? No, no, tape over it. And it's gone. Uh, and then they get one that's really good. And then if you're lucky, you have the luxury to say, let's try and beat that take. And if you do, you use that take and you race over the other one. Your dedication to tape runs pretty deep. Like, I think, is it true that Hotel Tatango is the one of the few places in Canada, or at least Montreal, where you can buy tape? Yeah, yeah we supply, I, I import tape from the States from uh, two tape companies. One is called ATR and one is called... RTM, Recording the Masters. It was an offshoot of MTech and BASF. And we use tape, and I wanted to have a steady stream of tape. So I made a deal with both of the tape manufacturers. and like, look, you send it to upstate New York. I will drive across the border. I will bring the tape across. Uh, I will use it. And if anyone else in Montreal needs to buy tape, just send them to me, and I'll sell them tape. Um, I think the tapes in our studio, actually upstairs. I are, have sold you tape. Yes. yes. Are bought from you. Thank which, you. Which might be the only reason I'm here today. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, some other artists that you mentioned a, a long time ago in this talk is Vic Chestnut. Um, and to me, uh, he's a very underrated yeah. guy. Um, he died a couple of years ago, yeah. right? What do you remember about recording with him? Um, Aside from all the Leonard Cohen stuff, <laughs> Vic was—he was—he um, was a hilarious guy, and so insecure about his songs. Like, we started recording this record, and he's like, "Ah, oh, I got these songs. They're all none of them are very good." And so, like, we're like, "Vic, let's just play us the songs." He's like, "Oh, I don't know, no, no, that's." And you start playing, and that's shitty. And uh, we were all in the studio. With, and he was there, like, we're just like, Vic, just play it. Shut up, play the song. And he would just, song after song, would just slay you w with how awesome they were and how touching they were and how poetic they were. And, you know, that record, the, the second record that we did with Vic, which was uh, called At the Cut, I think is... I have this theory about recording that a record is the sum of three parts. The songs, how they are played in studio, and how they are recorded. And all the ducks lined up on that record. Like it was just, the content was amazing. The people who played on that record, most of them were in Mount Zion and Guy Picciotto from Fugazi came. And they were just, everyone was just at the height of their powers and Vic just felt so loved and supported by them. 
and we were also honored to work with Vic. And that record really like fulfills that theory, sort of just knocks it out of the park that if, if all those ducks line up, it's just a great record. As a engineer, producer, you know, in the studio, how much of a psychologist role do you play? Every session is different, but having a skill set of being a psychologist or a cheerleader or a babysitter or a guru or a meditation instructor, um, I mean, those are all skills that I can say I've used, some even in the same session. Um, Vic, Vic was, Vic felt really intimidated by, he was just like, it was really funny because he couldn't believe that all these people, that he got to make a record with all these people, and we couldn't believe we got to make a record with Vic. Um, Interestingly enough, so the first day that everyone landed, we went to the studio and he played all these songs acoustically, and we made the whole record and mixed the whole record, and then we had like we finished with two hours to go, which never happens. You never you never have extra time at the studio. And then I can't remember it might have been Guy or, or Jessica said, "Let's listen to the record." So I was like, "Let's set up speakers in the tracking room," and everyone sat in the exact same seat that they were sitting a few months before when Vic played the songs, and Vic was even in the same spot. And we listened to this finished record, and like everyone got super choked up that like these songs went from these these shy little ideas to a record it was, it was really incredible oh you talked a lot about you know you're a meditation guru you're a um, producer you're an engineer you're uh, a lot of different things what if you had to describe what you do to someone, what what would you choose? I well, actually, what I would choose is and and I recorded this band, Sons of an Illustrious Father, who actually credited me as such, which is uh, musical midwife, is what I feel like is the most apt description of you know it's like I've been in this situation a lot, I've seen a lot of babies come out, they're not my babies, I'm not it's not my job to name them, tell you what you should name them, I'm just here. So that shit gets out of hand, I've been down this road. And we're going to do it holistically. We're not going to do it with a lot of intervention. I am your musical midwife. Um, But really, like, you know, the talk of, like, are you an engineer? Are you a producer? Really, it's just about, like, how much money you make. You know, and and people, like, when you're engaged, they're like, well, are you this or are you that? And I was like, look, I don't know what to tell you. I know that I'm the only person you need in the studio from the beginning of the process to the end. I can record this. I can tell you if some of your songs are similar and that you should ditch this one because this one says the same thing as that one, but this one's a little better. Or, you know, uh, no, we don't need another guitar part. Or yes, we do need a backup vocal. I can mix your record. You don't need to hire anyone else. I can make your record. The most successful records that I've made, having said that, are ones where the band is is incredibly self-directed, where bands have a very strong identity of themselves, and they don't need that much intervention. I love to make records that only the people who are in that room could make. 
you know? So it's like, not like, oh, this record sounds like anyone could have made this record. And it does sound like a hundred other records. I like to record bands that if you change one person in the band, one variable, that record would not sound the way it does. Was that what it was like with this Sons of an Illustrious Father? Yeah, Sons of an Illustrious Father were just, it sort of fell in my lap. Actually, they loved that Vic Chestnut record. Of all the records I recorded, they're like, that Vic Chestnut record. And there's sweet people from New York, uh, Lila, Josh, and Ezra. Ezra being Ezra Miller, who is now The Flash. So I can say I know The Flash, which is kind of a nice thing in case I get in trouble. He's an actor. He's an actor, yeah. They're just wonderful people. they, They embrace everything that I would want to embrace if I was in a band. They're political, they're gentle, they're humble. Um, and it was just a, it was a fantastic record to make. What was the, how did we get on the subject of this band? There was a question. They called you a musical midwife. They called me a musical midwife, yeah. But there was another question, I think, that was about this. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Anyhow, it's a fantastic record. It came and went. It's really sad. Um, it just kind of got lost in the... I mean, we live in a very oversaturated time. You know, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of being of music being made, and I really it must be really odd from your perspective to be sitting in you know a studio feeling like we killed that one, like that that record's yeah going to be the one, and then for it to come out and for it to not hit the right audience or something because you intimately know every 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 step of making that Sons of an Illustrious Father record, I was like, this record is going to be a, an important record. It's going to be a, a record that a lot of people like. It has all the trappings of being a really important record, like uh, Neutral Milk, Airplane Over the, the Sea record. is just such a special record. And you really got the feeling like that, that Neutral Milk record was only a record that those people could make. And the Sons of an Illustrious Father record, I thought this is this is only a record that these people can make. And they're so, uh, such interesting people. And it really felt like when it came out, I really felt sad that it didn't, it didn't catch. Um, I felt really paternal about that record. And I feel, I feel that, I don't feel it that strongly very often about a record. This is Jordan Rothline again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a minute to tell you a little bit about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world-traveling series of music workshops and events. If you want to find out more, check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. Also, if you liked what you heard on this podcast and you're not already subscribed, please go for it and consider rating us while you're at it. It really helps other people discover the podcast. Finally, there's a whole world of other great music programming like this to check out at redbullradio.com. That's all for now. Thanks for listening.